It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm Nyla Boodoo, and this is your Axios Today news break. This summer, there were widespread protests against racial injustice across America. And we're just now getting a sense of the price tag in damages, an estimated $1 to $2 billion in insured losses. How does that compare to insured losses for natural disasters? Here's Jennifer Kingston, Axios' managing editor for business. It's a drop in the bucket. You look at Hurricane SAES, and that will cost 3 to $5 billion in insured losses. In general, businesses have had an easier time filing claims for business interruption because of violent protests than they have had filing them for the pandemic. This is a totally different story. Your store was looted. You've got business interruption. We'll pay you. No questions asked. You can hear more stories like this on Axios Today, the daily news podcast that gets you smarter, faster. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. I'm Nyla Boodoo, and I hope you have the best day. You are Locked On Warriors, your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. I'm Danny Lure, your host, and so happy to bring you your team every day. This is the conclusion of Position Week in the Locked On Podcast Network, and I had an, a specific person that I wanted to talk to and somebody who also was excited about volunteering to do it, and that is my friend and former Real GM colleague, Jonathan Sharks, who now writes for The Ringer. And the reason why he was so perfect is because he's most closely connected with the Dallas Mavericks, and the Dallas Mavericks starting center last year was Zaza Pachulia, who is now the, the starting center for the Golden State Warriors. So we talk about him, JaVale McGee, who is a recent Maverick as well, and then the other kind of morass with a little bit of Draymond, Anderson Verizhao, James Michael McAdoo, and Damian Jones, and kind of everything else along in there. Conversation runs a little over half an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, man. How you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. I don't think there's anybody better to talk with about the Warriors center position than somebody who followed the Mavericks closely, who also followed Zaza Pachulia closely. Yeah, it's like the Mavs and Warriors just did an all-out center trade there. Like, we moved our whole position over to Gold State somehow. So, how, where would you start if you were to explain to Warriors fans what Pachulia did last year? Well, I think the first thing that happened with Zaza is, is he just got burned out. Let me look at the minutes. But he played more minutes for Dallas than he had played in a long time. And by the end of the season, he was like an orange that has been squeezed of all its pulp. So, like, he's never been a great athlete. So by the end of the year, he's had nothing left. He's really a poor man's Andrew Bogut in a lot of ways. Like, he's a big guy. He sets great screens. He rebounds. And I think the most surprising thing about him, if you haven't watched him before, is how good a passer he is. Yeah. I believe that was something that when I was digging through stats when I wrote a piece for The Athletic about him when, they, when the whole thing happened. And his, what happened with him was that his assist, like his assist ratio flew up just because the team was asking him to do more. I think that started in Atlanta his last year and then has really continued since then. Yeah, I mean, he's a great, like, he's a great high post passer. You can run offense through him. The problem is in Dallas by the end of the season is opposing teams kind of figured out his offense – because Zaza is like, Zaza can't really shoot jumpers. He can't really post up. And he's not a rim roller either. So a lot of times in the game, you just kind of stay in the middle of the paint, really doing nothing. So you pretty much have to involve him in the offense when he's on the floor, or your team is just not going to guard him. 
Yeah, and that, to me, that speaks to the idea of the Warriors using him. I'm sure he'll probably start some or even all games when he's healthy, but using him as a kind of a bigger cog in the second unit, depending on how they structure their, their rotations, because then he can get more involved in the offense. And from what I've seen with Petrulia, that also helps him defensively just because it helps keep him up a little bit. Yeah, defensively, he's a really smart player. He's really, I mean, he's a tough guy. Though bigger posts can't overwhelm him. DeMarcus, oh, he ate him up in the game they played against. That was bad. But he doesn't block shots very well. He's more a positional defender. And he's not very fast either. So you really can't put him out in the perimeter. He has to play back. Yeah, so you want you want him playing against a guy who's not going to be as active as the pick-and-roll screen guy. And fortunately, there aren't that that's becoming a less prominent part of the center's game than it used to be. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the biggest thing for him is going to be a smaller role. He was great the first month and a half in Dallas, and then he just kind of got burned out, and the league kind of figured him out. But if he goes to Golden State and he's playing like 15, 20 minutes and more of a backup, and not a backup, but more of like a, a backup role than in Dallas, where he was really forced to be a main guy, not really by necessity. Yeah, because Dallas just didn't have a, a really deep roster. Powell got better over the course of the year, but just at the beginning, it was really Zaza and not a whole lot else. And what I was going to ask you is, if know, knowing what you know, if you were to pick an ideal number of minutes for Pachulia per game, would it be like maybe like 18 to 20, something in that range? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Well, in the Warriors, it's, it's a weird thing that, considering the way this team is built, that they actually have a lot of different bodies that can play center, and I, it, it's hard to really know what order they're in right now, but would you, so if we're going to say that, you know, Pachulia, and let's not count Draymond Green for the, for the second, who would you say is the next best kind of center on their roster? All right, let me open up this depth chart thing real quick. No worries. Um, well, first off, what's up with Damian Jones's injury situation? Like, how heard, long is he out? I haven't heard anything definitive, but I'm under. I'm using the assumption that he's out until I hear that he's a specific timetable. Because I, I think it was it's a pectoral injury from what I recall, and so that can have a variable recovery time. So I, I'm going to kind of keep him to the side for now, at least. So you think it could be like Looney where he ended up missing the whole season? Or like he misses so much time he can't catch up? Yeah, it might be more like a... Let's see, I was going to use redshirt, but that's not an exact example because the guy has to sit the rest of the season. But where it's, you know, maybe like more of a functionally lost season, even if he does get to play, maybe he goes down to Santa Cruz for a little while and gets his bearings. But I'm not treating him as a main roster guy until I hear otherwise. Gotcha. You know, honestly, I'm really curious to see if JaVale makes the roster. Yeah, so am I, because... JaVale is the real ceiling player in this group because, as as you can attest to, again, another recent former Maverick, he still has a ton of potential, even if it's incredibly inconsistent. Yeah, it was such a weird situation in Dallas. To start with, apparently he was way more injured than people had realized. The way the Mavs were talking was like his career almost ended last before last year. Yeah. From whatever held him out in Denver and Philadelphia. So they had to bring him along slowly. And then Carlisle, he's just not going to deal with guys who are really flighty mentally. He just won't do it. And JaVale, like, God God bless him. For one thing, he would – it's a small thing, but his jersey cannot stay tucked in. <laughs> like, he would play, like, 15 seconds, and that thing is completely off out of his pants. And it's like he's playing – it's really kind of crazy. It's like, that was really fast. How did that happen? And those small things, too, like, in practice. I didn't go that often to practice, but when I went – you would see JaVale, like, working on a spot-up three game afterwards 
for like 10, 20 minutes. Like, I mean, great, you know. He kind of made a few of them, but it was just like stuff like that. And he never really gave JaVale much of a chance, I thought. I thought JaVale showed some real flashes last year, but Carlisle really didn't give him much run or much of opportunity when there were minutes to be had. Because as I was saying earlier, by the end of the season, Zaza was pretty worn down, and JaVale still didn't play. And he had a few games where he got in there where he made a real difference. Like, this guy is still, what, 7'1", 7'2". He can jump out of the gym. He's crazy long. He blocks a lot of shots. Any alley-oop you can throw him, he's going to catch it and dunk it. It's just everything else involved with him. And can a team get him to lock in for any amount of time? He's also only 28. I mean, so he's a player that, yeah, that means that he's past his physical prime. I mean, pretty much everybody is by that point. But it's not like he's washed up or that he doesn't have anything left as long as he can recover from that injury. And what you were talking about in terms of him being flighty mentally is certainly true. But the Warriors have more direct experience with that than other teams because most Bates was inconsistent while a very different player than JaVale. They have some of the strain some of the similar like mercurial nature, which might actually help Kerr because he dealt with Spates masterfully. Yeah, and like and yeah, he's declining, but he's such a great athlete at his peak and big men tend to like he's declining from such a high level, he's still a really impressive athlete. Like one of those things if you watch JaVale for like five minutes, you're like, why is this guy not a thirty minute a game starter somewhere? I mean he had a, he had one game against Memphis last year where he was guarding Zach Randolph, and he just demolished him. Zebo could not score on him. He posted him up, nothing. Then he gets in the pick and roll. He took over the game, basically. And this didn't happen very often, but there were these moments last year where you watch JaVale, and you're like, if he finds the right team and the right coaching staff, and he can stay healthy, I mean, there's some real potential there. Like A lot of guys have said that and looked foolish. Maybe I'll look foolish, too, but, man, I want to see JaVale play for Golden State next year. I really want to see that. Something that's been floating around my mind for the last two weeks is the idea of using JaVale as the center if the Warriors end up staggering Durant and the rest of the, the Warriors stars. You know, like So that, that is one theory that's out there of how they could make this rotation work. And why JaVale makes sense in that is that he's the most consistent defense. You know, he's probably the best defender they have at center, you know, if we're not counting Draymond. And he won't use a ton of possessions and... As long as the rest of the players, so let's assume it's Durant and Livingston or two of the guys on the floor, they'll be able to find JaVale for lobs when he's at the rim. Yeah, and just the playing with better players in general, like playing with guys who give him good passes and playing with guys who will cut off penetration more, so yeah, he's asked to do less. Like probably with JaVale, I would say, the less he's asked to do, the better he's going to be. How is he as a screener? Uh, he rolls really well, but he doesn't set... You know, he's one of those guys, he wants to go dunk the ball. He's <laughs> yeah. not one of the guys who wants out here just pound dudes. That's not really what he wants to do. And maybe that's something that can be, I don't know. And any, that's something that could be improved. Any aspiring young players who are listening to this podcast, if you want to get the ball and you're a big man, set a good screen. That's the best way to create the separation. I've been, if I could say something to Porzingis, it would be that. It's that Porzingis often doesn't set good screens, and if he set better screens, he would get more shots. I like to imagine 14-year-olds, you know, going to an AU tournament before the game or on the bus, right? Check out check out the Lockdown podcast. <laughs> yeah, but it, it is this weird thing that big men get so excited to, you know, to possibly get the pass to roll or now more commonly to pop, which is something you and I both love, that they don't, they don't set the screen. And that makes it a lot harder on their point guard because they can't do it. And that's something that the Warriors 
had in spades last year was Draymond is a great screener for power forward and Bogut was a great screener for a center. And so, as you mentioned, Zaza Pachulia is going to have to pick up that mantle, even though they're meaningfully different players in some ways. So Zaza is a really good screener. That's one of the strengths. Though I would say, though, on that, to be fair, a lot of guards don't set up the screen properly. True. Or they'll go too fast. And then Big gets an offensive foul for setting that screen. I think that's what a lot of the hesitation comes in sometimes. Because, like, those are cheap fouls you pick up really quickly, then you're out of the game. And that's because your guard didn't set you up to keep you positioned, keep you still to set the screen. That's a great point. And a lot of times, because they're not the one that's called for the foul, the guard is immune from criticism in those circumstances. But a lot of times, when you look at those mistakes, it's because it got set up. And see that a lot in youth basketball, and saw it a little bit in, in the Olympics, if memory serves, too. Yeah, they were calling it really tight, the Olympics. That's true. They were just calling... I mean, your boy Draymond couldn't get a catch a break out there. They no. were calling fouls on him every two minutes. Yeah, they were very, very intense on that. And one other difference I want to mention with Pachulia and Bogut that's important is that Pachulia is a capable free-throw shooter, which changes the ways the Warriors can use him because Bogut had to be in the game and prescribe points because he not only is he not a willing free throw shooter he actively avoids it you know that's just kind of how where he got to after his elbow exploded in milwaukee and patchouli being able to do that allows you to play him when the warriors are in the bonus yeah i guess i think i guess also you could play west or mac do at five sometimes sure depending on the lineup yeah, and uh, we should mention Anderson Verjao, even though oh gosh, even though I don't think either one of us is the biggest fan of him because he got a guaranteed contract, so the expectation is that that he'll be on the team. Oh, he's going to play for sure then. That's yeah, and, and it'll be a major test for her to see how he manages that because I mean you'll hope that Verjao comes back from from his injury. He was actually kept out of the Olympics because of a I believe it was a lower back injury, and so you hope that he makes it back. We root for that for everybody, and he's a nice guy. But how? Kerr manages that sort of a player, especially in comparison to, let's say, McAdoo, who's probably more capable at this point. But also, that gets into the idea of JaVale, because JaVale is certainly less consistent, but could be much better, and so it's unfortunate that they gave Verjao that contract, just because that makes it harder for JaVale to make the team. I'm looking at ESPN. Right now, it says y'all have three, six... 13 contracts plus Verjao's 14. Yes. So who's JaVale fighting for for that 15th spot? Elliot Williams is probably the biggest one. Uh, he got a, a pretty heavy partial guarantee. I think it's over 100000 And then they're still announcing the guys. Quinn Cook, Cameron Jones, Phil Pressey, like those guys signed. So that would basically... JaVale is, I think, the only big guy that's in that kind of fringe spot. And what could help JaVale in that sense is that I, I believe his contract is non-guaranteed, at least for, for a period of time, is that if Looney isn't ready to start the season, and the hope is that he will be, that they might actually need another big guy. And so then maybe they keep JaVale on for a little bit, and if they give him a chance to play, maybe he can blossom into something bigger. But yeah, I guess already you've got, if you count Looney as a 4-5, you've got one, two, three, seven guys with Verjao. So yeah, that might be tough. And then Williams is an interesting guy himself. I mean, who knows? Yeah, He's still pretty young. Well, and Williams has played. He played on the Santa Cruz Warriors last year, and they keep those organizations very close. So he has to be the favorite at this point. But you never really know, and it will depend a lot on situations. I mean, you always hope that that players stay healthy, but an injury would completely swing that dynamic, just like it does all too often in the NBA. Yeah, and then I guess because you count KD, he'll play a lot of four. 
Yeah. So that does make it a little, the math a little tough for him. It does, especially when the Warriors' best lineups are with Durant at the four and Draymond at the five. So the Warriors don't need that many centers, but they also probably, it's hard to know for sure, but they probably won't play too much of Draymond at center during the regular season. Because I was just going to ask you that. Like, how do you think that's going to play out this year? So but. last year, it happened more often, and, and we asked Draymond at various points in the year about it, and... He, he seemed to indicate that playing center was harder on him physically, which makes complete sense, you know, that, that you have to body up more frequently and everything like that. It certainly looked like it took more out of Barnes as well. So they will go to it, you know, like let's say a great example of that was, you might remember the game, it was early-ish in the year against the Clippers, and the Clippers had this like 10-point lead at Oracle. Yeah, and I remember that so they went So they went to the death lineup and just blew him out of the water. And so and it'll, I think in the regular season, it'll probably be the equivalent of a break glass in case of emergency because they'll do that. And the other challenge, which is understated a little bit for the Warriors, is that they don't have a ton of perimeter depth. They have, you know, they have a really good top end. I mean, the, the top end perimeter guys are arguably the best in NBA history. But outside of them, they're going to need players to really step up. So when you stretch it thin and play Durant at the four, then you're going to ask a lot of, you know, Ian Clark and all those guys. So that's another reason. But once the playoffs come around, that will probably be one of probably the hev- most heavily used lineup. Yeah, that feels like it's how kind of the league is going with these big fives. They're like baseball where you have like these inning-eating starting pitchers, and their only really job is to throw 200 innings and not kill the team. Then the playoffs come, you get way more specialized, you bring your bullpen a lot earlier, and you kind of save that. Save for really, really matters, those kind of cards. Because yeah. you can't play them all season, these like bullpen guys, two innings a game. But in October, it's like, let's just go for it. And you can even extend the analogy that in, in baseball playoffs, you play your best starting pitchers more frequently because there's the way rest has changed a little bit and because the, those players are primed to do that. So when you can play your best players more frequently for a little bit longer, then you're also asking less. And so you can take players who were, you know, maybe it was your fourth starter, you can change them into some sort of like super sub-specialist, which is probably what the Warriors will do with somebody like Petrulia, will then become maybe they might have him start the game then do quick hook and then have him be a key part of the second unit i'm not exactly sure how they're going to do it but that's also why i'm so interested in his free throw shooting because they can be more flexible with him than they were with bogut who would basically play the beginning of the first quarter until the team got into the bonus and then just sit for a half that's interesting. I guess that makes I didn't thought about that. But that makes sense to Bogus free throw shooting because he gets the ball, you can just foul him, and it's basically the ball's back your way. Yeah, and yeah. A, when a team is as good offensively as the Warriors were last year, and more pertinently than they would be this year, that is a big thing because the the expected points per possession on two Bogut free throws is substantially lower than a normal Warriors possession. Yeah, I, I guess though I still you guys think at the end of the day. If the playoffs are in, it's a deep series. They're going to just start Draymond at the five when it really comes down to it, right? Like they did last year, basically. That's not going to change, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think that's going to change, though. Last year in the finals, the only reason we really saw that take shape is because Bogut got hurt. You know, before that, Bogut was starting every game. But but he was, you know, not playing that much. It was a lot like in the 2015 finals where Bogut, you know, would have that would have that quick hook pretty early on. And then eventually they switched to the lineup that won them the title. But it's also going to be a big question this year 
whether Looney can step up. It's not as much in terms of the center rotation, though him being a second or garbage time center would be awesome. I think that'd be a really good use of his skill set. But how he fits into this big man rotation is going to be important because if he can sop up some of those minutes, then that allows everybody else to be a little bit fresher and could also maybe open the door for... I don't know. I don't know exactly how he's going to be defensively, but that I, I feel like a Looney McAdoo combination might work well. Looney at the four, McAdoo at the five. Yeah, because they both they can both yeah. kind of float between the two. They're I, they're at this point they're probably both going to be better help defenders than main defenders. So you can kind of bounce it around a little bit. I heard a rumor that McAdoo was getting some serious interest from teams. It seemed I didn't really buy it. I heard that at summer league pretty strongly that they my source told me like he was sure McAdoo was getting courted heavily. But I didn't really buy that because he got what a minimum deal from the Warriors, right? Yeah, he might have he might have had some interest though because he is well liked by the staff and by the players, and he plays hard. And he, you know, one of those guys who always—it's a cliche—but he always stayed ready, and that is important. And there's you, you know about this because you followed the college game for a long time. Is that whenever a player was highly touted, really at any point, and settles into maybe a little bit of a smaller role. There are people who believe that, oh, they can become the guy they were originally. Harrison Barnes is pr- probably a, a good example of this, that when a guy is ever that kind of highly touted top 10 guy, and while McAdoo fell from that perch during his time at UNC, he was there at one point. Yeah, when he came in that first year he came in, he had been a top 15 pick. It had been like Marvin Williams, because he was behind Henson, Zeller, UNC. Right. And everyone's like, this guy's going to blow up, he's going to be the next superstar, and that really happened for him. Yeah, and when yeah, and when that occurs, there are people who remember it, especially when it happens at a massive, massive school, and think, oh, he could he could do more. It's just that oh, he's he's trapped on the Warriors because they have so many other good guys, so he can be more for us. And you know, he, the market wasn't so robust that a team would have had to pay a lot. The analogy, in some ways, might be somebody like Seth Curry, who like there was this interest like for people like me who thought that he could grow into a into a bigger role, but for whatever reason, that didn't manifest itself and allowed another team, Dallas in this case, to get a good bargain. Yeah, I mean, I will not to get too off target. People in Dallas are interested in Seth Curry. They should There's be. a lot of positive buzz about him. Eh, it counts as Warriors-related because he was a Santa Cruz Warrior and his brother happens to be on the team. Oh, I think I heard of that guy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's all right. But, yeah, Seth, what really helps in terms of Dallas, well, this is just be a quick thing, but we have to talk about it, is that Seth is good off-ball as well. And Dallas is one of the rare teams that can play two point guard guys together because Carlisle's okay with it. So they'll play him sometimes probably with another guy, whoever that is, probably Felton. But Oh, no, Felton, never mind, not Felton. Felton's he's on, the, he's Clippers, on the Clippers. Yeah. But Devin maybe one of those guys. And so, because he can shoot the crap out of the ball off ball. And so they'll do that a little bit. And he got better defensively over the course of the year. So it could work out, you know, no guarantees, but it's a great contract either way. The Warriors should assign him to that if it was available, but they didn't have much flexibility because of the whole Kevin Durant thing. Yeah, Carlisle loves two-point guard lineups, so that was a good spot for Curry. Like, there might not be a coach in the league who just, I don't care, I'm playing two-point guards. And I don't care what the rest of the defense. At one point, he was playing against Oklahoma City, and he was putting Devin Harris on Durant just so he could play two or three point guards together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was remarkable. 
Well, yeah, that's a, it's not really a center-related topic, but it is something that I think we're both interested in, is how the Warriors are going to manage, in the regular season particularly, but it's more relevant in the playoffs, how they're going to manage Durant's defensive assignments, because, first of all, he's going to be a free agent after this year, and so you know you want to keep him happy, but he showed in the playoffs that he's so capable on that end, and him getting more aggressive assignments can actually help in terms of going to those bigger lineups with Draymond at center. I mean, why even? Let's just go think really outside the box. Let's put Durant at center sometimes. You could do it. So then Andre at the the four, probably? Yeah. Or Looney at the four, or I don't know. That would be fun. Like, if you put Durant at five, like, you're going to score every single time, right? Like, forget it. Okay, yeah. You you know. You're you're a good person to ask this question. This will be a running theme of Locked On Warriors before the season starts. Unless you, you probably already thought about this, but. Not knowing the talent around them, how would you defend a Durant-Curry pick-and-roll? So Curry handling Durant screening. Gosh. I was just – I was literally writing an article about this or in the process of it. I mean, because if you think about it, like all those switches last year in the finals, it's over. You switch Plunker on Durant, he's going to score every time. Yeah. God. I, I think it requires a third guy. That's my operating theory since the 4th of July has been you have to send a third guy and hope that they can't make the pass. But this ties in with another weird problem that teams will face on that is that Curry's a really good passer and Durant is so tall that sending a double to him doesn't necessarily help because you should be able to see over it. Man, yeah, the Curry-Durant pick and roll is, yeah, I, I, I don't even have an answer for that. I don't understand how you're going to be able to guard that play. The only thing to do is is, is make someone else beat you, right? It, it, it's you just have to that. send help. It's going to be that. I, I think that's really the way to handle it because it's funny. I'm kind of poaching, cannibalizing pieces that we're both going to write because, of course, this is a topic I'm going to write on a lot, is the worst-case scenario to me if for those guys is that the ball handler gets an open shot. You know, it's probably going to be Curry. You know, they'll probably run more 1-3 than 3-1, though they could do it. And so if that's your worst case scenario, then you start to go into the switching hedging route. But then that creates the second worst one, which is a wide open Durant shot. And then you're just sitting there going, well, how do we prevent both of those? It's- oh, here's another thing. Um, did Curry screen much last year on the ball? A little bit. Not as much. He did more down screening, but we could see that a little bit. He did it sometimes with Clay. But a fundamental difference with this year's team than last year's team is that they have another guy who can actually run a pick and roll who will be playing with him because Durant can do that. So, because that's something when the Mavs had Dirk and Nash, they would do this a lot. They'd have Nash screen Dirk's man, try to get the switch, and like, we're getting two points right now. Like, get a point guard on Dirk right now, and we're gonna score. So, I guess a one, a one four pick and roll or something, or a four one. Well, and think about what happens if you're playing Durant at the four, the five, and you have that same constraint because most teams are going to be playing. Actually, most teams will probably still keep their 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 best defenders, so probably their small forward on Durant. But it just creates all these cascading things. And when you think about who the other players are in those lineups. It's, you know, Draymond Green can either hit open shots or pass or, you know, or Clay Thompson is one of the best catch and shoot guys in the league. And so if you have those players around it, Iguodala will probably be in that a lot. He makes good decisions. And so when you help off of them, they've created a really good team of players like that. And that's something Cleveland deserves a lot of credit for, too, is for the most part, they've built a team that makes sense around LeBron James. Yeah, I guess to get to keep us somewhat on topic, in the playoffs, do we think we'll ever see Durant 
uh, Iguodala, Thompson, Livingston, Curry, a lineup like that. Do you think yes. we'll see it this year? Yes, I, I do. I do think we will. Whether it will be in a pivotal moment of a, of a key game is another open question. But Kerr has a little bit of that Popovich in him, where he'll sometimes he'll throw something out and work. And the Thompson Livingston Curry trio actually played minutes together both of the last two years. Yeah, I think like that's. I guess this is a little. We were talking about this before we into this podcast. But like the way the way the sport is moving, you're seeing more and more seven footers who can just play five and shoot threes. Well, Kevin Durant's seven feet; he can shoot threes. Let's play him at five sometimes. I want to see it. Let's really go all all in with this thing. And that ties in with a very relevant topic, which is that the more teams move away from those burly back to the basket centers the easier it is to play Durant at the four and at the five because you don't have those guys that are just going to physically dominate him and put him in the goal. Not only from a, you know, basketball just scoring perspective, but from a fatigue and, you know, frustration perspective. You know, there are less DeMarcus Cousinses in the world and more of these kind of like fringy fives. Like if you put Durant on Gorgie Jang, I don't think Jang is going to really wreck him too badly. Yeah, and I think also Durant's, what, 28 right now? Is that right? Yeah, it sounds right. I mean, he'll, like, naturally, as he gets older, he'll put on more weight. He'll get a little slower, and it'll just be an easier and easier fit. And I'm like, let's find a way to make him, when he's 30, like, when Kevin Durant's 36, maybe he's a full-time center, you know? Well, that's, I mean, that was the theory with LeBron for years, was that he was going to, when he aged, he was going to become a full-time power forward. Well, he's only 32, Maybe that's where this all goes. Like in 2016 Bay Finals, it's Durant and LeBron at the five instead of at the three. I'm on board. I am so completely on board with that. Yeah. Let's just throw all the chips in there. Let's just see what happens. Throw all the chips in the air. Well, and, and the other intriguing aspect of this, and Durant is a great example of it, is as we get more players that have greater than point guard size who can do point guard things then you can open up some of these other more creative offensive possibilities because you can initiate different kinds of actions. I mean, with Durant, you can run... We talk a lot about the Curry-Durant pick-and-roll, but a Durant-Draymond Green 4-5 pick-and-roll is just filth. Because you can't switch that. You can't switch that either. And so you get into those kinds of circumstances, and that sort of a thing is also what what New Orleans needs to be fiddling with and a couple of these other teams. But why it works better with Draymond is that if they sw- whatever they do, you know, if they if they double Durant, Draymond can make the right decision. It's almost exactly the same situation they were in with Curry and Draymond, except the difference is you probably have your four and your five or something like that pulled out, which makes it even easier for Draymond or whoever else to get an open bucket. And you've got like theoretically Steph and Clay, so the spore is just so wide open for that Draymond four and three down the lane rumble with those two guys. It's I mean, it'd be so much fun. Yeah, I think so. That I was talking with Eric Eric Gunderson, who does Locked On Blazers, about the idea of kind of this team being villains, and one of the fundamental misgivings I have with that concept is that this team is going to be so fun to watch that it's going to be hard to hate them, except that except when they're playing your team and just demolishing them. But that that happens. Well, I I think it's one of those things. They'll be villains, but the end of the end of the day is people like winners. If they win enough. Like, who cares, right? Yeah. That's what it's going to come down to. They'll be villains for a while. But like the Heat, by the end of the Heat's run, they were showing more vulnerabilities. People starting to like them because they won a lot. When you win a lot of games, we're, we're all about winning in this country. If you ain't first, you're last. 
if they if they're first enough times, people people get on board. Yeah, and they'll also be entertaining while they do it, which makes it a lot better. I mean, this this team offensively is going could be at a, a very different level, and they will probably start reasonably strong just because they have so much talent, but they will get better over the course of the year once these guys figure out exactly where they want to be with each other, and that's something that has been a real hallmark of the Warriors during the Kerr era is that even on the night they won the championship in 2015, they talked about how much more they needed to incorporate in the offense. And so even after they were second in the league and they're like, oh, we need to do all this stuff, that was after one year. And so now they've had more time to adjust to Kerr and to the system that Gentry helped install. But now they have a whole new system in a way because they have the second best offensive player on the planet on their team. Yeah, I mean, when you have a system, Kevin Durant is the system. So that'll be interesting to see how that... It's going to be fun to watch, man. Not breaking much ground there, but it'll no. be fun to watch. So if you've looked now more at the kind of the center depth chart thing. Would you think about having JaVale make this team just because of his potential? Yeah, I would I would find a way to keep him on this roster. Just because, just the length, just the, what, what possibly could, could be done with him. I feel like it's an unfair comparison, but, you know, the Dennis Rodman and those late Bulls teams... Like, you got that head case, all talent in the world. If you can just get him under line, keep him on lock, I feel like it's worth burning a spot in your roster just in case. Especially on a team that doesn't have a lot of ways to get better. You know, like in the, in the short term, the Warriors only have minimum contracts. They will potentially be a, a candidate for buyout guys, but we don't know who that is. We don't know when that's going to be this year. So having him around is a way of reaching something that they didn't, they hadn't done before. The other option, if he was amenable to it, which maybe JaVale would be, is kind of figuring out a way to get him money either through partially guaranteeing his contract or whatever, and having him technically on your D-League team but not really playing that much, and basically saying, hey, if somebody gets hurt, we're bringing you up. And that's not against the rules, as long as you can get him to understand it. Yeah, is he still under contract with the Sixers? I forget now. Whether they're still paying him money? Yeah. I know last year he was calling himself two checks for a while. I think think that finished last year because they did. I don't think they stretched his contract because there wasn't really a reason to because they had so much money. But I, I don't believe he is. But at the same point, you know, he's made so much money over the course of his career, which is kind of made because he had to sign that four year, like $44 million contract. Yeah, it looks like he's off Philly's books now. But yeah, his two check his two checks time might be over, but he's still making plenty, or he's still made plenty. Yeah, to me, it's just like the the potentially as the fifteenth man is worth keeping him around. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Uh, anything else you want to discuss? Uh, I think that's about that's about good. I think. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. All right, no problem, man. Thanks again to Jonathan Charks for taking the time to come on. You can read his great writing at The Ringer, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Charks. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. He's really doing good work, and I'm, I'm super thrilled for him as somebody who's known him and liked him for such a long time, and to, to see his work get recognized like this is phenomenal. And hopefully you've enjoyed Position Week. It was a blast to do this and to talk with different guests, and the split of you know doing having mostly guests and having one be a solo episode is something that I'd like to do moving forward. I had fun with that, and it's not all the way locked in yet, but it looks pretty definite that for the episodes where I do a lot of notes, that those will go up on The Athletic, which is where my Warriors content will be. So if you like that sort of thing, if, that, if you want to kind of see what my process is, you can look there. I think I'm going to try it out actually with the point guard one, so it's a little bit outdated in terms of the episode because it came out on Monday, 
but I'm going to try to start doing that. There were some people who were interested in it. It was something I wanted to do and got approval for it today. So that is very exciting as well. So that will be a part of the process. And as we move into the more open part of the schedule, you know, when there are fewer games and there is, let's say, less going on is probably a fair charitable thing to say. Those your kind of inputs will be important. Hoping to do some mailbaggy stuff. Also, have we'll probably have an episode on Media Day next week. Already recorded one with Tim Bontemps on expectations, and we'll probably do a couple more like that over the next few weeks with various people whose opinions I respect. So, hopefully, you will enjoy those as well. Your input can go to my own Twitter is probably the best place. You can go to Danny Larue, D A N N Y L E R O U X or Danny LaRue, MBA at gmail.com. I try to read everything, respond to as much as I can. You can also follow Locked On Warriors at Locked On Dubs on Twitter, Locked On Warriors on Facebook, or Locked On Warriors at gmail.com. Again, I, I will be handling the, the reading and, the res- and responding to that sort of thing as well, but you can do it if you prefer to do it that way you can. Something that is very important to support this and any other podcast that you enjoy is to... Make sure you download every episode using whatever you use. We're, we should be on Stitcher now, which is pretty exciting. I think we're on just about everything. If there's something we are not on, please let me know, and I will do my best to find out why that is. And so download every episode, give us a rating, give us a review, because those sorts of things do a couple different things. First off, they are assigned to sponsors, potentially, that we have a listener base that is enjoying the product. But in some ways, more importantly, depending on perspective, is that it's a signal to other listeners of, hey, this is worth your time. And so far, the feedback has been great, which is wonderful. And I am open to negative things as long as you can give me a way to make it better. I'm fine with that. I get I get ripped on various things on Twitter. I have thick skin. And some have asked about theme music. That is something I'd like to do eventually, but I just am on to get licensing and something like that. So that will come with time. I haven't figured it all the way out yet, but it will be distinct from my other podcast offerings for those of you who listen to Dunked On or Real Jam Radio. I want to have something different for Locked On Warriors. I don't know exactly what it'll be yet, and that is in no way a slight to the music on that, which is composed by a good friend of mine, but I just want to do something a little bit different with this. So we'll see what that is. But another important thing as we head into another weekend is the Locked On Podcast Network not only puts out great NBA content, but they also have NFL content, and they're Locked On Raiders and Locked On 49ers. So for those of you who are NFL fans of those two teams or any other team, you can listen to that as it surrounds the weekend, of course, leading up to the game, and then reaction after the game. And that is some, a, a nice way to do it. NFL is a very different podcast format. I've been thinking about it a little bit. as been, I've been dealing with the Locked On Podcast Network, and I certainly respect their challenge because it is very different than ours and they're doing a, they're doing a really good job so that i'm excited about that and you should definitely check that out so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day hey bay area sports fans this is ben kaspik host of the locked on giants podcast which should be the next locked on podcast you fire up in your feed the mlb off season is closing in and i'll have you covered every day breaking down the rumors speculation and transactions that'll shape next year's giants team subscribe to locked on giants right now on your favorite podcast provider
This is Josh Lloyd, the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast, the number one fantasy basketball podcast in the world. If you are looking for information regarding fantasy basketball, recaps of the NBA, this is the show for you. We are heading into the offseason and starting to get ready for the 2020-2021 fantasy season. We'll have all the information on what happens through the rest of the playoffs, free agency, the NBA draft, and then heading into a big 2021 season. So make sure you're checking out the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast.